This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Ah, got you. Oh no, I'm spooked. Everybody, Spooktober is still on, it's still going. It's our third week, second week, third week? I don't third know. Week. I've been trapped inside of a book for the last week and a half, and I don't <laughs> even know. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. This week, we're talking The House of Leaves, or just, no, excuse me, House of Leaves by Mark Z. Danielewski. And I can't remember a time that a book has made me feel this way. <laughs> we can talk a little bit more about that. I know the other book I think that has stuck with you in the most, not like, I, I don't want to pigeonhole you and say that you are reacting to this book in a negative way, but like the one that you bring up when you're talking about books that stuck with you in a bad, in like a negative way are was um, Girl Next Door. No. That book so, wrecked me. Oh, like which? So that book was really just about people doing horrible things. That to was each a, other. yeah. Girl Next Door was a gross book. I thought told it, in told in a way that like maximized the sleaziness. Yeah, yeah. Just really. Like, tr- how what was it like? True crimey or something? It was true crimey, but it dug into some really horrific. Uh, abusive behaviors by some teens and it just yes. got and it got like scatological it was just bad news all around so what like how is this how's how would you say this is going to compare emotionally like what kind of emotional journey are you going to take me on for the next 55 minutes it's more of an intellectual journey okay it's more of an existential journey there wasn't really anything in this book that made me want to puke <laughs> I'll that. <laughs> well, that's good. Um, and I, I sat next to you as you read it on the train for like half an hour, yeah, and I just—it was just you like flipping a book around <laughs> in your hands trying to read it. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, I don't. There, there, there's something about the reading of this book that will—that is very kinetic. Um, and then the the other the unsettling parts of this book come from like if you're really engaging with it. It just does something to your brain that, like, a lot of just question marks start popping up in the world. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to find a way to put it into words, and you both want to answer them, and you don't. Um, <laughs> but there's nothing like nothing that's like horrific specifically, though. I would I would say. Aside from like some of the spooky dreams that I had because of when I was reading the passage, like this is probably the book that we've read for the that I've read for the show that is like legit creeped me out. Like so I, I would you were the most spooked. Yeah, because like even Girl Next Door, like that was revolting, and I didn't like it. It didn't scare me. It just made me feel horrible. This was like I would I had to stop. 
reading because I was unnerved at one point. Okay, um, all right. Well, that's a that's a good because uh, g- I think that like the the books we've read for Spooktober so far, yeah, sure, plenty spooky. But I'm glad we're reading one that's given you some genuine thrills and chills and spills. Yeah, I fell down at one point. <laughs> <laughs> um, first, let's talk a little bit about Mark Z. Danieluski. He was born in 1966, and he's Another New York City area uh, writer, he writes satire and horror primarily, though sure. he would quibble th- about the classification of, of House of Leaves as horror. He has a story he tells about a, a definitely real person who came up to him <laughs> and said, you know, everyone told me it was a horror book, but when I finished it, I realized it was a love story. And she's absolutely right, he says, of a real third person who is not him. Telling an anecdote as a oh, person that he no, made up. No, the Reddit. <laughs> no, but Andrew, now the Reddit threads in my brain are starting to coalesce. Uh oh. Oh no. Oh no. Uh oh. Uh, w- <laughs> we'll talk. We'll talk about that a little bit, I guess. <laughs> this book came out when the year two thousand. The year. The year two thousand. Oh, what an future. innocent time. Yes. Um, and it won the New York Public Library's Young Lions Fiction Award. Young it was very Lions. Well, yeah, I know. I don't know. Like if a. F- Peewee football team gave him hands out fiction awards or what, what the deal is. But um, yeah, it was, ve- it was very well reviewed at the time. I don't think it was like a international smash hit bestseller, but it's got a very devoted uh, cult following as many, as much of his work does. Um, Daniel Lewski is known for um, what is sometimes called visual writing, which is a kind of like you vary up the the way text is laid out on the page and the typeface and you use it to like drive certain points home or tie certain like themes and elements together um this is often called ergodic literature often um, you would say <laughs> well okay i'm going to get to that so <laughs> critics have have referred to the work as ergodic which basically just means that like non-trivial effort is needed for you to actually read the like the act of reading the book is meant to be somewhat difficult it is yes which we'll talk yeah, about yeah as opposed to just like turning the page and having your eyes pass over the words and then turning the page like like that basic mechanical interaction is supposed to be hard and i i wonder in ergodic literature when i was talking about kind of like what this really just diving into this book would do to my brain pattern. I wonder if that's some of it is just, it is a reminder that reading, even though it doesn't feel like it is a physical activity. Yeah. And having to act on it in a way that you don't normally just kind of changes how you're taking in the information. It took him like 10 years to write it though. Cause he, he did it like longhand, and then he had to learn how to do all of the layout stuff because he's like an auteur. And yeah, you, I you was know. I was looking, and I had I had an inkling as I was researching it, but there is no Kindle edition of this book. Heck no! I don't know how you would do it as a Kindle edition. There, but he are, has not tried. <laughs> let me tell you this: so the book, um, it says. By Mark, it just says House of Leaves, Mark Z. Danielewski. It doesn't even say by on the cover. And then um, it says a novel down there. Right? Yeah. Uh, and then on the inside, where there's like the Library of Congress information at the bottom, it says a note on this edition. And there's a box that says full color because there's full color in this edition. Uh huh. And then it says two color, black and white, and incomplete. 
I read on the internet today that the incomplete version may not exist. That might just be part of the fiction of this book. Man. Some of the some of the typeface on the Library of Congress page matches the typeface of the book's fictional editor. I don't know, man. Did a, did he do that or did some fan in the Library of Congress do that? I don't know who handles that <laughs> information. I don't know. It might have been um, his buddies at Pantheon Publishing. I don't know. Um, yeah, that's a, so. I'm he's made a book and also an ARG, I guess. Yeah. Um, when I when I said that most people would call this ergodic literature is because he, of course, who his his Wikipedia page and this is one of the we, the weaknesses of Wikipedia is that in a regular curated encyclopedia, people would devote an amount of page space like roughly proportionate with the importance of the subject. Sure. And in Wikipedia's case, the length of the page is usually a a product of fandom or something. Like when it's not when it's not about <laughs> historically about historical events, it's about fandom. So his Wikipedia page <laughs> is a million miles long and it has lines like um uh Daniel Lewski has commented on his disappointment with criticism's inability to properly confront his work. <laughs> I'm not even so sure critics, what that means. Critics don't just don't understand is what it means. Um, and he says of his of his style, it's a sign iconic. Oh, I saw um, that that's, quote. That's yeah. one word. It's a sign plus an icon. And see, tell tell me if this clears anything at all up for you, because it absolutely does not for me. Rather than engage these textual faculties of the mind remediating the pictorial or those visual faculties remediating language, the sign iconic simultaneously engages both in order to lessen the significance of both and therefore achieve a third perception no longer dependent on sign and image for remediating a world in which the mind plays no part. I was with him until the end. I was with him. <laughs> I was with him when he was talking about um, making the pictorial part of link, like language while you're reading as important as mm-hmm. the like I don't know meaning based meaning. <laughs> uh, but the part where there's like a where he opened up my third eye. I don't know if I believe that part. Okay. Yet. Yet. So we're gonna get there. I bet. Um, I know there's a, probably a lot to talk about with the book. The last uh, Daniel Lewski fact I wanted to bring up is apparently he has not been seen in public without a cat shirt on since at least 2010 because <laughs> he loves cats. Okay. Which is the kind of thing that's only on his Wikipedia page because it's his fans who wrote the page. Like That's amazing. I don't know about the cat status of like most of the authors that we research. I, but I dig it. Uh, yeah. I do also want to add that his sister, uh, who goes by the name Poe, uh, made an album called Haunted that is supposed to like share a bunch of elements with this book. You can listen to it while you're reading it, I guess. Some of- listen to it backwards while you're reading I this, don't, and yeah. you'll discover the incomplete edition. He, I think he's he reads some text from the book on it. Apparently, I listened to a couple tracks. It's from 2004. It sounds like some you know 2004 indie rock, like experimental indie rock. Not to knock okay. it, but like it didn't it didn't unlock a a third part of reading this book. Like he <laughs> said it might. So, um, but yeah, let's uh, let's take a quick break and then I'll blow my mind and your mind maybe and my mind everyone's minds okay bye
Hey, Andrew, our sponsor this week is Harry's. Whoa, what's the Harry's? Harry's or Harry's.com, they're all about a great shave at a fair price. It was found by two guys named Jeff and Andy, who are two ordinary guys who are fed up with buying overpriced razors. So they started Harry's to fix shaving. Like they bought like a German factory so that they could control the whole process. Whoa. And now when you sign up for Harry's, you just get those razors sent right to you. You don't have to go to like a store or something and have a man uh, like unlock a box for you to get your razors. Like you're buying a gun. Yeah. <laughs> And I know that you use Harry's, right? I do use Harry's. Yeah, so you you are a bearded boy, but I cannot. It is it is embarrassing <laughs> for me and for the people who look at me when I let my facial hair grow out. Uh, so yeah, I, I've used Harry's for a long time. They have really nice uh, understated razor design. Like if you, if you look at a at some other razor and you think it looks kind of like an athletic shoe and that doesn't like do anything for you. <laughs> That's where I basically am. So yeah, they have really nice um, understated handles and their blades. I, I, what I like about their blades is they have just a little bit of like flex to them, mm. which I feel like gives you like, like it conforms to the contours of your curvaceous face and yeah. it gives you a, a nice close shave. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan. Well, great. You, the listener, can be a big fan, too. You can claim your free trial offer from Harry's today. It's a $13 value for free when you sign up. It just covers shipping. Uh, your free trial set includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision-engineered blades with the lubricating strip and a trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, a travel blade cover. Uh, and that's it. That's what you get. Yeah, um, and if you and if you like what you get, um, you can schedule Harry shipments so they send you new razors like as often as you change. Like I usually change your razor every couple of weeks, but uh, for people who like to change every couple of days, so they have a, a fresher razor, like they will they will conform to your schedule and they'll send you as many blades as you need. Great, they'll conform um, to your schedule like the blades conform to your skin. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Uh, to get your free trial now, go to harrys.com slash overdue. That's harrys, H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com slash overdue. You ready for this? No. <laughs> I'm really not. We're going to do Tell, it. Explain to me the, explain to, I guess we're back in the show now because I started using my show voice and I, I sat closer tell, to the microphone. I tell you did. <laughs> tell me in what way you're not feeling ready. Like what's, what's got you most intimidated about talking about this book? Because there are some books where I just, I approach the podcast with a vague sense of dread that I'm just going to do <laughs> a terrible job and I'm going to wreck the podcast. So when we announced the schedule, folks were excited. More folks than I expected were like, oh yeah, House of Leaves. I saw a friend of mine reading this book mm, easily 10 years ago, thought it looked weird, uh, <laughs> heard a little bit about what it was about and kind of mentally bookmarked it for a future Spooktober. Not ten years ago, but later, <laughs> I didn't know we were doing. In ten years, 10 years, when ago. I have a when I have a modestly successful book podcast <laughs> that makes October a thing every year, I will read it on the fourth year that we do the thing. <laughs> yes, um, I have a big note at the top of my notes here that just says, "There's stuff in this book I won't be able to explain or dig into." I'm sorry, and I, I make that <laughs> disclaimer because this book is written with a lot of internal references, a lot of external references. It's meant to be poured over. It's meant to be not quite solved, because I don't think that you can solve it, but 
there's a lot of riddles and a lot of mystery and a lot of stuff to piece together. Well, um, I've read that part of the goal when writing it was uh, like with the, with all the stylistic stuff was to make it so that reading it you could not read it the same way twice. Basically, oh yeah, no, you couldn't. Mm-hmm. There's no way that I could that I going through this I would probably skim over other parts and dive into some stuff that I thought was one thing and it's different. Sure. Um, the fact that the forums and the Reddit threads for this book are still active will <laughs> tell you. And some of it's like, oh, I just found this book and here's what I'm doing. And then people are commenting like, ha ha ha, you'll see. <laughs> like, it's really. It is It is as though the content of the book is more than should fit within the confines Shut of the physical up. book. <laughs> so that's the main thing. Let's get to the, the, the thrust of what we're doing here. So like sure. I alluded to before the break, this book is, to sound highfalutin, it is metatextual. Um, so in fiction... In the fiction of the novel or whatever House of Leaves that I'm reading, I am reading a book called House of Leaves (laughs) that was written by a blind man who recently died named Zampano or Zampano, I think. I I love Zampanos. (laughs) I think it's Zampano. It's a very spicy kind of pepper, I think. I am reading the second edition of House of Leaves by Zampano. In fiction? Yes. The second edition? Yes. All right. With an introduction and notes by Johnny Truant, okay, and then Johnny Truant uh, writes a f- uh, well. The first introduction just says this is not for you, and then the real introduction is Johnny Truant, whose entire writing is in like Courier, I think, the font. Um, some kind of some kind of monospace. Yeah, yeah. Typeface. Um, and he's- which for those of you playing along at home means that every letter takes up the same amount of width regardless of how much how wide the actual letter itself is thanks andrew learn something every day yeah um and he writes a couple of pages where he tells you that he was moving into this new apartment his friend lude was hanging out with him um he said oh there's this like weird guy in my apartment building who's blind and wanders the grounds all day and there's all these cats everywhere and then one day he just dies uh, and w- they go, Lude and Johnny Truant go into his apartment, and it's like completely sealed hermetically from the inside. Like all of the windows have been blocked out, and it's been caulked up. And he like stretched out measuring tape and ran it from the floor to the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And like under his body, there are claw marks, and there's this big chest that has all of these papers in it. And as Johnny is telling you about this and describing it to you, um, he is starting to seem a little unhinged himself. He's talking about how he has nightmares. He alludes to the fact that he, quote, hasn't even washed the blood off yet. Not all of it's mine either. And you're like, wait a second. What? <laughs> What's going on, Johnny? Have you can do you not relate to that? Like, has that never been you? <laughs> I never just discovered an old man's frantic ramblings and gone. Let me write down a quick note about it while my hands are covered in blood. Hey, man, I haven't even washed the blood off yet. Oh, so weird. God, that's so like me. Um, and then, uh, and then, so he decides to take this guy's book and edit it. 
and compile it and then send it out into the world. That's what you know as you're reading this at the beginning. So what what you are reading is the ramblings of an old blind man put together and put out into the world by somebody whose uh, sanity is already in question from the jump. Correct, Amundo. Okay, great. And there are also editor's notes from the publishing house where they will say, we reached out to Mr. Truant about this it, like unfinished footnote and we couldn't reach him. Or we uh, after the first edition was put out, we put this section back in and we got all these emails from people who had questions. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's really bizarre. Mm-hmm. And Zampano's book is called House of Leaves is about a film called the... N- I think it's Davidson record. It's spelled like the word it's spelled like the name Davidson but with an n. With the n. Yeah, let's let's go with Davidson. Davidson. It's fun to say. Um so Zampano's book is all about the Davidson record, which is a film that Johnny Truant tells us probably doesn't exist. Uh it is a scholarly work about a documentary film or fictional film, we don't know about a family that moves into a house in Virginia that, as you alluded to earlier, Andrew, is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Okay. And for me and for the purposes of this podcast, I can talk about the Navidson record, the Navidson, oh gosh, the Navidson record <laughs> um, with the most like clarity and understanding. The Navidson record being the movie that the book (laughs) is about the movie that the book that the book is about yeah okay here's the extra layer for the navidson record so according to zampano this film was released and is like some sort of sensation and people are studying it all over the place it crops up in you know academia um, there's. Let me just give you a list of some of the celebrities that get mentioned um, who respond to this film, Andrew. Steve Wozniak, Stephen King, sure. mm-hmm. Jay Leno, Tim Allen. <laughs> just some people <laughs> who make... What would Tim Allen have to say about it? I think there was an episode... So in this is in the footnotes because there's copious footnotes... Um, one of the footnotes alludes to Leno doing a monologue about the Davidson record and Tim Allen doing like a spoof episode of Home Improvement about it, I think. About like trying to build a house that's bigger on the inside than the outside? Sort of. So let me explain. <laughs> it's bigger. Uh, so the way that this house thing works, and, and again, so all of Zampano's writing alternates between like talking about the criticism of this film that may or may not be real. Uh, it may, and from Zampano's perspective, it is real, but it may or may not be a documentary mm-hmm. about that. Um, this is like a, this is like a, is the Blair Witch Project real sort yes. of vibe? And, it, okay. and, and that is actually a good thing to hang your hat on for the style of quote unquote film that the Davidson record is where you're just like up some terrified person's nose half the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So we can, t- let's talk about the Davidson family real quick. Um, it's Will Davidson, who is a Pulitzer prize winning photojournalist uh, who actually 
is loosely based on the real Pulitzer Prize winning photojournalist Kevin Carter, who took his own life in 1994. He took a really famous photo uh, during the Second Sudanese Civil War of a young girl who actually he thought it was a girl. It was a boy, but like dying of starvation and like a vulture is like right behind it. Um, and it's this like famous, you know, award-winning photo. And in the fiction of the Navidson record inside of House of Leaves, uh, Navidson took that photo. So I don't know what Daniel Lusky's doing there. I don't know what Zampano's doing. But are we like are we are we meant to believe that he also took his own life, or is it important? Um, no, in in this story, he does not. Um, okay. I bring that. I think Kevin Carter's name gets mentioned in this book. Um, but it comes up a lot in the scholarship on House of Leaves. Anyway, uh, that photo ends up like haunting Navidson later in the book, which is why I mention it. So he and his wife. Oh no, not his wife. Uh, his partner. They do have two kids. Uh, his partner's name is Karen. They have kids named Chad and Daisy, which are pretty good kid names. Yeah, those are fine kid names for um, the year 2000. His career has been taking him all over the world, you know, and he's finally ready to settle down. And they get this house in Virginia um, on like old, like kind of like Jamestown colony territory. And they mm-hmm. take like a two or three week trip to Seattle. And for some reason, because of who Navidson is, he's like rigged the whole house with cameras. <laughs> like, I think he does this. I don't think he does this before the house starts getting weird. I think he does it just cause. Maybe he just wants. Wrong. Maybe he just wants like the nest cams. Like he wants. He wants some sort home of. security system. And it's, they're almost all described as like high eight cams. I don't. This was twenty years ago in technology. I don't know what that means. I'm gonna look up what a high eight cam is. Great, Hold thank up. you. I don't know if it's related to like super eight. It might be. That would be my guess. Um, yeah, it's another. It's another. It's an eight millimeter. Eight millimeter video format. Um, meant to. Um, compete with Super VHS. I didn't even know that Super VHS was a thing. Um, uses improved recorder electronics and media formulation to increase the recorded bandwidth of the luminance signal. Sure. So I guess the short version is that it's better video for audiovisual nerds. Yeah. Okay. Great. All right. Which makes sense given the character. I yes. Guess. Sure. So they come back to their house and they have discovered in their bedroom. A door that didn't used to be there. Weird. And they open it, and it's a lightless, dark hallway that leads to another door that opens into their kids' room. Okay. And so the room, found a hallway. The room has, like, expanded to contain it, if that makes sense. Which room has expanded? Their the rooms. Like, the like inside the rooms, the rooms are now a tiny bit larger. Oh, Okay. So, Navidson tries to measure his house to, like, figure out what happened. And whenever he measures this, he tries to measure the outside. And whenever he compares it to the inside for a couple days, it's a quarter inch off. And Uh then it slowly starts expanding. Okay. So, he calls down his estranged brother named Tom to come help him out. Like, their relationship is is part of, like, the plot, let's call it, of the book. (laughs) Um, they enlist another engineer uh, named Reston who was like he uses a wheelchair because of an accident when he was in India or some freak accident Um, and then 
while they're you know they're investigating the house uh they leave for a little bit and there's this like section where you can tell that karen and will don't have a great marriage like it's not again i keep saying marriage relation just say relationship yeah it's fine because it ends up you know that might be where they're working towards this house was maybe supposed to facilitate that and honestly it does sound like it would be good for property values to have a house that was continuously expanding (laughs) you would need to update zillow like well yeah a lot, like pretty often but, but what if every time you try every photo you shared of the expanding parts of the house it was just like lightless dark terror walls like that wouldn't be good for zillow andrew no i mean some photos on zillow are kind of like that anyway <laughs> <laughs> so at one point she is like building bookshelves with a friend of hers and you get this like little passage of a little window into her anxiety about their relationship and then the next chapter ends with the bookshelf rapidly expanding and like books falling off the shelf, freaking her out. The next day, they can't find the kids for like five minutes. They hear them screaming from another dark hallway and a new one has opened up in their living room, Andrew. This one does not have a door. It's just a dark hallway that you can't see the end of it. You don't know where it goes. Okay. So uh, against his... Uh, against Karen's protestations, Will goes in there at night, and he decides to explore it. And of course, this is where the like the Blair Witch aspect part of this fake film comes in: is that he's recording all of this as much of this as possible. Uh huh. And we are hearing it through Zampano's. I have watched this film. People have studied this film. People have attached meaning to parts of this film. So there's a lot of talk about the craft of the shooting and what he decided to include and not. So there is an irony where you like you think that Davidson gets out of there somehow. Anytime he gets in a jam, you're like, well, he did make this into a movie mm-hmm. in fiction. Mm-hmm. So maybe he's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. So now, did, does he ever try to like furnish any of these, any no, of these rooms he or he just leaves them empty? Just, well, they're not rooms. He tries to like, hang some art on the wall. Big creepy hallways. He does turn a corner uh, in the first exploration and ends up in this big like anteroom where it's echoing. And that's when he turns around and realizes that behind him, the walls have shifted. So even while you're in there, it can change. And is this like shifting labyrinth behind you? And it's getting like steadily more strange and large as time goes on. Yes. Okay. So one of the things he does, he invites some friends over to like look at it. <laughs> like imagine if you were like a award-winning photographer, knew some folks in like the film biz, and you invite your celebrity friends over. Do you just go to the living room and say like, check out my hell wall? Like, is that <laughs> what you do after dinner? I think you charge people five bucks to come and see your magic expanding house. That would be cool. That would Try be cool. Try and make some money off it. Um, they do think about that. So they get, they hire three explorers to come into their house. Like professional, like hikers and climbers and stuff. Um, Holloway, a guy whose nickname is Wax. Uh, and a guy whose name is Jed. And so Holloway, Wax, and Jed come in, and they're going to lead this, like, almost like we're going into the Arctic, because it's really cold in there also, and it is completely without light. You can bring light in, but it only goes so far. And uh, 
Holloway and, and Navidson are talking about the fact that it might make them money, like if they if this leads to some sort of discovery, right? Um, and Holloway, they go, there's like four explorations at this point. And uh, the first one, they go in for like an hour, they mm-hmm. end up finding a staircase. Mm-hmm. They go in another time, they spend eight hours in there, they drop a flare down this spiral staircase, and they never see it hit the bottom, they never hear it hit the bottom. Uh-huh. They were there for hours, like, who knows? Okay. They go in there a third time. They're in there for like 20 hours. They go down a couple rungs on the stairs. They're like, they have fishing line with them and they're recording all of it, of course. And they're like leaving uh, like neon paint arrows on the walls to try and tell them where they're going. Those always get messed up. Um, The last time they go down, they go down the stairs. They go down for like days. They go down the stairs past like radio uh frequency levels uh working and holloway brings a gun with him that time because when you're in there sometimes you hear this roaring noise you don't know what it is it like whooshes past you like a wind and that is it usually signifies when like the walls are shifting huh I you was going to say it sounds like no I was just going to say it sounds like the, there's like haunted hvac system in there but <laughs> But no, it's the walls shifting. Okay. So we're into the part of the book that started to give me the spooks. I can and tell. I'm, I'm going to tell you spooky. why. <clears throat> you hit about one page 120 in this book. And the layout... Now, the layout has already been a little challenging. Um, there's lots of footnotes. There's lots of dense text on the page. Um, but 120 is, in, is particularly funky because all of a sudden you start getting these like blue boxes in the middle of the page that have their own footnotes in them. Mm-hmm. So it's funny that you just mentioned HVAC systems, Andrew, because it's talking about the this like space that they're in and what is and is not in it. And it says, not only are there no hot air registers, return air vents or radiators, cast iron or other, or cooling systems, condenser, reheat, and it goes on like that for mm, 15 pages of different features that are not in this weird hell space. (laughs) But this footnote is confined to a two by two inch square in the the upper right part of the page. I'm just going to try and hold it up to you so you can see. Okay. You see what I'm talking about? Yeah. And so that footnote carries between pages almost like a window. And on the previous page, it's written backwards. Like you're seeing <laughs> the reflection of okay. that footnote. And, and it is, the, did, did you, you did check to make sure it was exactly the same and there wasn't something hidden in there. I, was there? I, I don't know. I'm, okay. scared to, I'm scared to do that. And All then right. on, on the next page, there starts a footnote down the side of the page that's listing... Um, different styles of architecture of which this cavern is not. Mm-hmm. That goes on for 20 pages. And then meanwhile, you see on the other side of the page an upside-down footnote that's running along the side of the page that I had to go forward 20 pages to find the start of. <laughs> I was in my living room shouting, where is footnote 148? Like <laughs> loudly to myself. And like, I'm getting a little amped up just talking about it. Okay. There's one 
that's just reversed and it's also rotated by 90 degrees. I don't know what it says. I, d- I still don't know what it says. I could maybe use my you're phone look, to figure it out. You're looking at it right now and you still don't. I feel so confused. I feel like I'm losing my mind. Uh, so like to Danny Lusky's earlier point about making the act of reading it a thing that you have to engage in directly and how it changes how you think about it. So there's the suspense of what's going on in this hallway and Zampano is like throwing, I'm calling him Zampano because he's the one who wrote it, I guess. I don't know. He's throwing these other, excuse me, references at you to that simultaneously distract you from what's going on and build in suspension, suspense and tension Uh because you might turn a page and get a three-page footnote from Johnny Truant's perspective uh, about a woman that he slept. Johnny Truant stinks. I'm just going to take how a does breather he stink? here. He is pro- taking, a John- taking a Johnny Truant break. Taking a Johnny Truant break. And inside of this like labyrinth, Holloway and the boys getting lost section, there's at least one page that like a sentence cuts off in the middle with a hyphen and you get a three-page Johnny Truant footnote. So like... Daniel Lusky is using this other narrate narrative voice to like, as I said, build in natural kind of like cliffhangers and stuff like that. Okay. Um, Johnny Truant is again in the be- before that introduction where he may or may not have murdered someone. You don't know. He <laughs> seems like a reasonable enough like driftery. He's an employee driftery guy. Like he's an employee at a tattoo parlor who all he wishes he could draw tattoos, but his boss won't let him. And he has like bad long-term luck with women, but he doesn't seem to have problems like just like having one night stands and then having it all go poorly. Um, he's just like an aggressive womanizer. He's not even a womanizer. Cause that, that presumes that he has like, I don't know that he's of that more specific of a mold, but it all seems to be about how his failure to connect with a bunch of women that he's sleeping with and then discarding. Okay, Um, great, 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 great. Good. And then that's also like those stories are being run through the lens of a guy who's giving you footnotes on the Zampano book, who also seems to be slowly losing his mind. Mm -hmm. So he like will envision having, you know, beating someone up and then immediately tell you that that didn't happen. Okay. He's a, he's a cr- wonderfully unreliable narrator in that way. Um, but I just like, it always came on so strong and was purposefully hard to follow that like I found myself losing interest in Johnny. Like I really just wanted to hang out with the Navidson record. You kind of felt like he was like his layer of the story was getting in the way of, of your enjoyment instead of augmenting it in some way. I think, yeah, I think so. Um, do you think, do you think that's intentional? Like, is that part of making the book more difficult to get through? Well, I think it is intentional that Johnny is connected. Um, there are readings of this book that imply that Johnny might not be real. There are readings of this book that imply that Johnny might be Zampano. There are readings of this book that uh, imply that Zampano may have like known Johnny's mom. Like it's a whole I don't know what to believe anymore. And like that's <laughs> part of the, the book is purposefully doing that to you. The, I will say. The whole labyrinth stuff, there's like a whole chapter on 
the labyrinth myth and the cre- various creations of the Minotaur and Johnny over the course of the book. At one point, he has a dream where he is explicitly a Minotaur in a maze. Jeez. Um, but he, like, his dad died when he was young. His mom ends up getting committed to a mental mental institution after she may or may not have tried to strangle him. It's unclear what she was doing. Um, And then he gets bounced around between a bunch of different foster homes, and some of them are physically abusive, and he's fighting because he's acting out. And that is slowly unraveling through all of these footnotes. Some of his footnotes are like, I don't know why Zampano did this. He contradicted himself from five pages ago. Uh, And then some of them are these rambling personal anecdotes that don't have anything to do with the book. Which leads me to believe, or it leads me to ask, rather, if I were the in-fiction publishing house that agreed <laughs> to publish this book, why? I, would, I would wonder why... I have so many questions. <laughs> ...this would happen. Um, there's even one where between, as I said, between the first and second edition of the book, like women that Johnny has slept with have have purportedly written notes to the publishing house asking him what's going on you're like okay what is i don't know why this this is related this but this sounds exhausting and like i i'm glad i'm glad you're the one to read this and not me (laughs) i will say and i i don't like based on the Facebook response to the schedule, I don't think like that's a con- entirely that's an opinion I'm entirely alone in having. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, There's so yeah, because I I was game for it. I I'm I will confess to reading a little faster through some of the Johnny stuff of like not if I got a little confused I was not you were maybe not fully engaged in like going back and making sure yeah 100% never missed a beat anywhere in the story I get that yeah um and read it like it was a song in a Tolkien book Mm -hmm. yeah there are certainly parts of this book that do that there are parts Mm -hmm. of this book that I'm like that I was glued to though like I really I will not forget the that feeling of like I got to figure out what this book is even trying to tell me even if all these footnotes are just rambly lists. I got to pick them apart. Um it then starts to do a thing a little bit later in that part of the adventure for lack of a better word where Holloway has gone like full space madness crazy down there. He is shooting people. Um Will his brother and and Reston have to go in after them to save them. And the staircase has now like changed proportions. Um, it is a lot it is no longer like miles deep. It is a matter of minutes to get down to the bottom. Um, they go down there, they find the two guys who've been shot. They try to get them out. And as they are like hoisting Reston up with using rope, um, the staircase starts expanding again, mm-hmm. like, instantly mm-hmm. and the text on the page like reflects that so it okay. starts getting really spaced out you'll get one or two lines per page all of the stuff talking about will is at like the bottom of the page all the stuff talking about what might be going on up top is like at the top you can feel it it is actually like moving page by page like it might be 
kind of scrolling up the page as you turn the page. Does that make sense? Like the text yeah. is slowly moving up in right. where it is is set. Like if you did like a flip book thing, you would yes. you would see it mm-hmm. creeping up. It's it was all so purposeful that there is a crease on my page 184 that I'm not sure if it's there on purpose or if it's just the book has a crease in it. Like there is <laughs> there's like part, a like a dog-eared page or what No, kinda? internal. It's it, it's like right in the center of the book. There's a there's just like an indent in the page you just, you don't and you don't know if that's something that you did or something that was done like at some point it hasn't when gone the book away was andrew being shipped or <laughs> I don't know just the book screwing with you and it's not on any other pages oh, no. i feel like a looney tune um so that that story goes on and the thing that really the the part of the book that made me stop reading it was at the end of this section of the story where they you come. mean temporarily stop reading it i yes. don't want to give the impression that you didn't no, no. finish the book <laughs> no i was reading it it was like midnight i was in my living room with the lights on but laura had gone to bed so the upstairs lights were off um we'd been down in this evil basement for a long time <laughs> some people had almost died one person has died and they they've lost will they've lost navidson himself and his brother and Reston are like getting the other bodies out of there. And the kids, Chad and Daisy, are like standing in the kitchen while they're like bringing these like bloodied bodies and just dropping them on the linoleum floor. Jeez. And there's this big growling sound that's like coming out of the labyrinth. And Reston has to slam the door shut. And you don't know if Navidson is ever going to come back or not. Um, and that was a point where I just I looked up my stairs and I saw that the lights were off. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't like not knowing everything that was up there. <laughs> like, sure. I had a, and it was not rational. It was not, I had not, I didn't have a really strong thought process about it. I just felt very uncomfortable with the uh-huh. idea that stuff in my house, that there, there's room for stuff to be in my house without my knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that I think is the central anxiety of this book. The fact that it's a house, like obviously a house is supposed to be like a, a home and mm-hmm. it's supposed to be a, a familiar, comfortable space that you fill with all your crap and your memories and your dumb cat that's meowing outside the door for who knows what reason right now. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and it, yeah, you don't want to think of, like, I don't even like to think about, like, oh, what if there's, like, a pipe or something weird in my wall where I can't see it? Like, I, yes. I don't, I don't, what if something's wrong with the insulation? What if there's mold in there? Like, I, I don't, it's not a place where you want, like, unknown things to happen. Yeah, and, and it's just, it's spooky. Like, I just caught myself being more uncomfortable than normal with things I didn't know. Okay. And, be, and I think... The, the fact that the book wants you to always be connecting dots, to always be investigating it, to always be working through it, puts you in a mindset where everything might have significance. Sure. Including stuff you don't know about. Hmm. Including stuff outside the book. Like, there's just this feeling that it's all connected. And, and so that's mirrored in fiction 
by what's happening with Johnny, where at a certain point, his job is he's completely failed going to work. He is now living in an apartment that he is basically reproduced Zampano's nutso apartment where he's like pulled measuring tapes all the way to the edges and like made sure that the room is never expanding. They've cut off his electricity. So he's like doing this work by candlelight. He says that he only leaves his room to quote, buy tuna, uh, get books from the library or sell blood for candles. And I was like, okay, dude, <laughs> sell blood for candles. Cause he's in his apartment with no light. He has, it's the only way to make money, I guess. You gotta sell, to sell your his plasma blood. so you can get so you got candle money, candles and tuna fish money. I guess. All right, it's get just stinky tuna blood. It's something else. Um, so then the the Will and Karen story kind of closes. There's some pretty horrible stuff that happens. To some characters in the middle uh, that I don't want to necessarily spoil. But he goes back in after the big like initial uh, event. Um, there's like a page of braille before he goes back in. That's did all. Did you figure? Did you read that the, somehow? It has a footnote. It has oh, a okay. footnote um, that tells you like that it's like about going into hell alone or something like that. Okay. Um, and this the this was the part that you saw me reading on the train, Andrew. Was he was in the nether, just like first he had a bike and then it just like it broke. And he had to leave it behind and he went down a big staircase and then he was like in a hallway that kept getting smaller and smaller. So the text gets like in a tinier and tinier box on the page. And then all of a sudden he's floating in nothingness. So the words are just all over the place. There's a page that's just sheet music. I don't know. <laughs> but who knows? Um, and he does get saved. But. But is any of it real? Probably, um, the way you ask it makes me think, like, probably not. But I because, guess I don't know. Because there's a weird thing on the, again, like, whether or not any of this is real, there's a note on the, like, uh, the first, it's not even a page of the book. It's this, like, collage of images where... Um, that's clearly like someone who's been pulling the book together is is piecing together things and it's like Zampano maybe talking about what if instead he killed both the children and made the parents like watch it happen and murdered them and you're like wait mm, what if he didn't do that what if we didn't kill Chad and Daisy who seem perfectly wonderful uh so you get, again, you're like, what is this Navidson record? What is this movie that does or doesn't exist? And then the book takes a couple pages at the end of its normal book self um, for Johnny to, like, talk for a couple pages. Right. And he encounters people who have been reading his book, The House of Leaves, that he apparently published on the internet but forgot that he published it. What? <laughs> okay. You know, that's very Snow Queen's ice dragon of him (laughs) a little bit. Yep. Um, And then there's like all sorts of appendixes, appendices, excuse me, that were apparently not in the quote unquote first edition, including a set of poems that Zimpano wrote and a bunch of letters from Johnny Truant's mom 
some of which have secret messages in them. I think poems that Zampano wrote is my favorite Juno Diaz book. <laughs> and this gets <laughs> these two appendices, the Pelican poems and the letters. Oh, I, I want to make sure I get it right. The white stow, the whale stow letters, excuse me. Are a, the latter is a collection of letters from Johnny's mom while she was in this uh, mental institution written to Johnny. They get increasingly bizarre and start to look like the rest of the book. Uh-huh. Um, there are secret codes where she's telling him that she's being abused in this mental institution. Um, but at one of the secret messages references Zampano, Andrew. Okay. What? Uh-oh. Why? I don't know. Is Johnny real? Is he their kid? Is he... Who knows? I don't know. Apparently, Danielewski published the Whalestow letters as a standalone text just to mess with people. Man. You there's know? Another, there's another thing. It was a book called... Um, man, I closed all my tabs. It was... Um, uh, there, there was a book that he wrote, like a novella, that he only printed like a thousand copies of in the oh, first gosh. English edition. Okay. Um, the 50 year sword. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it was, and it was republished in uh, the U S in 2012. And since then it's, you know, it's, you can basically just buy it if you want it. But for many years you had to pay like hundreds of dollars to score a copy <sighs> because they only did a couple runs and they were only like a thousand dollars each. So he kind of, it seems to like, trolling people with with his own just publishing schedule yeah. as much as anything and and from what i can tell from reading about people reading about this book is that there were some forum entries from 2005 that i found that like i couldn't tell if these people thought the book was real or not like that <laughs> like someone had done some google map searching of where the house may or may not have been I did like, not, I did not, you asked if I had run into anything and I didn't, I only saw like results from forums when I tried to search okay. for people who thought okay. this was real. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Why would somebody get on a forum and read more about this book? But apparently that was what, how you did it. Yeah. Well, so that gets, there's a, there's a quote from, I'll just say it's from Zampano, I guess, somewhere around the, that earlier uh, labyrinth section with the with the nutso footnotes that I talked about mm-hmm. where people were the scholarship around the Navidson record of the film was that to be if you were going to make a scary film like that um, you'd have a lot you'd use a lot of money to make all the effects but he like shot it clearly on like a shoestring budget it wasn't a real thing like Miramax picks it up in fiction and like distributes it and like huh. shows it at theaters um and the shoestring nature of it lends people to believe that it might be real even though there's all this academic scholarship on the storytelling nature of it and so zampano writes strangely then the best argument for fact is the absolute unaffordability of fiction <laughs> thus it would appear the ghost haunting the Navidson record, continually bashing against the door is none other than the recurring threat of its own reality Huh. So that gets to the heart, I think, of what Daniel Lewski's up to, where like there's even a part of this book. This is one of the things I didn't like where he 
puts in some notes about a, a book that may or may not have existed in the 1600s that claims that some settlers found like a creepy staircase to hell or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not explicitly to hell. It's actually to like a hellish nowhere. Um, and I, I thought that was a little on the nose of call it Daniel Lewski, call it Zampano to include such a thing. Mm-hmm. But the the very purposeful... What makes stories like this scary, and I think what made The Blair Witch certainly scary when I first saw it, was that that fuzzy line between reality and fiction. If you can, you dress this story up in academia, in scholarship, in metatextual nonsense, and then you're like, but wait. Like the parts of it that feel real, that feel real seep through... And then in fiction, the parts of it that may or may not be real are are so up for debate because so much of this book is up for debate in terms mm-hmm. of what's really happening that it just starts to creep in and it doesn't matter if it's real or not. It's still creepy. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of examples in, in fiction of people mistakenly thinking that a thing is real when it is when it is not. Probably the Orson Welles War of the Worlds Oh yeah, broadcast. That's a great example. Yep. Was uh, mm-hmm. was the most famous one, but um, but yeah, it's it's it makes it way more spooky when it's not like oh hey I am reading a fictional book that is gonna give me some thrills, but uh, what but, if this yeah is... when, when, what if it's not just a book? What if it's not just a book? What if it's not just a book? I think it's just a book. Let me put that rumor to rest. <laughs> But the 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 search for meaning and and the desire to have the film mean something or not within the the fiction of this book is very interesting. Um, and also, there's one more bit that I had that I wanted to talk about. Um, oh, there's a part where they are analyze. This is something I just thought was neat. There's something that they're they're analyzing physical samples from the hallway. Where like mm-hmm. while they were in there, they're like scraping stuff off and putting it in jars, and they take it to a science lab, and some of the material could be millions of years old. And you're like, is it aliens? Who knows? Is it aliens? Where was does it? Spooky dinosaurs? What's going was on? <laughs> yeah. And then there's like a big note that just says like 17 pages missing, and then there's a footnote. And Johnny Truant's like, yeah, I was holding it down with a candle, and I left it, and it flew out my window. <laughs> Uh-huh. And then it was gone. And that's the kind of fun stuff that happens with the footnotes. Um I not the spooky like I can't find that footnote, where did it go feeling. Mm-hmm. Um sometimes there's a lot of there's some wit to it as well. But yeah, that's some of this book. Did you find that ultimately it was really a love story? No. <laughs> Though I will say if that if some cursory internet research is anything to be believed, there is like that implied relationship between Zampano and Pelafina could be, and Pelafina's Johnny Truant's mom could be the love story that he's alluding to. Hmm. That like okay. they had a thing, and then that you could also read some sort of love story into Karen and Will, who do end up together. Um, after all of the terribleness with the house uh-huh. um but i think he might be referencing uh 
Zampano and Pelofina. I don't I don't know. I don't <laughs> I honestly don't know. Okay. And there's certainly stuff in this book that I didn't catch, and there's certainly stuff that I, I may have misread because it is a book that wants you to like sit with it. Mm-hmm. Um stuff I didn't even talk about include like how the word house is just the color blue all the time on the page. Like you're supposed to be able to click on it. No, just it's like set apart and jumps out at you and you're not sure why. And, like, the, and the color is blue? It is like literally blue. Dang. Anytime it's, I can't. Man, for a debut <laughs> novel, like yeah. to have to negotiate with the publisher to like do all this, I'm sure, like super expensive stuff, like doing blue fonts and all this typeface stuff and creepy creases in and random there's, spots. There's like images and stuff. I, w- yeah. I really want other people to say, to, to write in and say if they have like a creased copy oh of House God. of Leaves as well. That would spook me so bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, you know, I kind of completely glossed over a lot of giant truant because I found some of that stuff super gross. Um, and if other folks found that to be true as well, uh, I'd love to hear from you, but I, it is something that's in the book that like, if it turns you off the book, I totally understand. Uh-huh. Um, I think given the nature of his character that you can kind of take it into the whole off kilter world that this is and what this book and story is doing to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that is not an excuse if it's like, mm, I, I don't think that that's totally cool. Um, yeah, I it actually prevented me from really connecting with Johnny at all. Even if I was, I don't know if I was supposed to, but um, as you said, it might be a pur- a purposeful difficulty that Danieluski has put into this book. Right. I don't even know. Zampano uh, wrote this book. He didn't. I don't hey, know. If you if you were not supposed to connect with him, uh, congratulations because <laughs> I won. It worked. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so if you, the listener, thanks for going inside the house of leaves with me, Andrew. You're I don't welcome. know. It was kind of spooky in there. It's kind of. It's just there's no light in there, and it's so cold, and you don't know how long you've been there, and all the walls shift while you're in there, and there might be a monster that steals your backpack. Mm-hmm. It's pretty spooky. <sighs> Man, spooked over, getting spooked, getting inside my brain. Um, if this book has done things to your brain, let us know. Hit us up on social media: Twitter.com/slash/overduepod or Facebook.com/slash/overduepod. Uh, I want to thank. Some folks who were tweeting at us after our live show this past weekend um, down in Fairfax, Virginia, and other folks reaching out, including Aaron, Carol, Becky, Charlotte, Kelsey, Emily, Amber, Rachel, Riboflavin, Josh, Randy, uh, Jasmine, Rebecca, Alana, Jerry, Kenneth, Grace, Shannon, Ronnie, and Trisha. Thanks, y'all. You can also write in your House of Leaves theories to overduepod at gmail.com. I will put them on the forums right away. Um, to share them with the world. Cool. Andrew, where do folks need to go if they want to find out more about the show? If they want to find out more, they go to overduepodcast.com. Up there we have um, iTunes, RSS, Google Play links you can use to subscribe to the show. Um, We have a link to our Patreon page, which is a way you can support us financially if you like the stuff we're doing. And we have a a new listener page with a lot of episode recommendations um, for people, I know we we had a few new listeners in the audience at our at our show this this weekend, which went super well. Um, if you are trying to get into the show or trying to get somebody you know into the show, that's a good place to to go and uh, 
and see some episodes we think represent like good work that we have done. Like all all of our work is good, of course, but those um, are good entry points. Yes, right. And if you did if you did not make it to our uh, Fall for the Book show, um, we're going to be posting that audio probably sometime in December to give ourselves a bit of a holiday break. So I looked at the calendar and it should actually drop on January first, twenty eighteen. There you go. So happy New Year from us to you. Um, but yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, and I'm I'm excited for you guys to hear it in like three months. Try not to <laughs> try not to get too, <laughs> don't get too mad that you can't hear it before then. But it's sure. just we have we have a schedule. We and we knew when we needed an episode to have been a live show. Yes. Um, next week we'll be posting the episode that we recorded with uh, Natasha from Unspoiled. Mm-hmm. Bag of Bones. Um, about, yeah, Stephen King's Bag of Bones, which was another, like, I don't know if I was spooked, but I got a little grossed a couple times. Yeah, true. Yeah. Um, so look forward to that. Uh, we will talk to you next Monday. Try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.